If you get a chance, you can go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word as well. We're going to be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7 this morning. We are continuing along in our series. We started about, I think, right at nine months ago today in August in 2 Samuel, line by line, verse by verse. And I thought, what better way to celebrate homecoming than do what Greg Abels does, which is line by line, verse by verse, expository preaching. So we're going to continue in our study. And, and this point, if you are familiar with the book, this is right after David has committed that horrible sin with Bathsheba. Um, and put Uriah, her husband, to death and is confronted in his sin. So, Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, the precious, inerrant, infallible word of God says this. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a, and a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, we do gather this morning in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, confident, Lord, that as we sing, you indeed will hold us fast. We're reminded in this passage that if it were not so, this morning we would have no hope. But Father, would you remind us of our desperate condition that we might better understand your gracious remedy. Would you help us to see the depth of our own sin just even a little more clearly, that we might better understand the depth and the mercy of your mercy and grace toward us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for this help in the precious name of our Savior, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So there's this poem by Alice Carey called Nobility. And it begins this way. It says this. True worth is in being, not seeming. In doing, each day that goes by, some little good, not in dreaming of great things to do by and by. For whatever men say in their blindness, in spite of the fancies of youth, there's nothing so kingly as kindness and nothing so royal as truth. I think we can make a strong biblical argument for that very thing. There is nothing so kingly as kindness and nothing so royal as truth. But we might also say that there's nothing less kingly than falsehood. There's nothing less befitting than the king of God's people than to be 
a liar. So for the kingdom of God to be the kingdom of God, falsehood must be brought to light. This morning, we're going to begin to unpack this. That is, the bringing light to the falsehood we saw at work throughout 2 Samuel 11 with David's sin with Bathsheba. And right out of the gate, one of the most important fundamental truths that come to bear on every single hearer's heart in chapter 12 has to be this. The Lord sees all. He does. Uh, just, we're going to spend some time just on this truth because it is so foundational to grasp this entire narrative that we have to. The Lord sees all. And that's something that we nod our heads and say, yes, I agree. But, but practically, we don't believe that. I don't believe we do, at least. Look at chapter 12, verse 1, how it starts. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. We might actually even back up to the end of chapter 11. Remember, the, the Lord's not mentioned in the entire narrative of 2 Samuel 11 until that very last line that says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There's a folk tale in the book of Virtues by William Bennett that goes like this. Uh, Once upon a time, a man decided to sneak into his neighbor's fields and steal some wheat. If I just take a little from each field, no one's going to notice, he told himself. But it will add up to a nice pile of wheat for me. So we waited for the darkest of night when thick clouds lay over the moon and he crept out of his house. He took his youngest daughter with him. Daughter, he whispered, you must stand guard and call out if anyone sees me. The man stole into the first field to begin reaping and before long the child called out, Father, someone sees you. The man looked all around but he saw no one. So he gathered his stolen weed and he moved on to the second field. Father, someone sees you, the child cried again. The man stopped and looked all around, but once again he saw no one. He gathered more wheat and he moved to a third field. A little while passed and the daughter cried out, Father, someone sees you. Once more the man stopped his work and looked in every direction, but saw no one at all. So he bundled his wheat and crept into the next field. Field, the last field. Father, someone sees you, the child called again. And the man stopped his reaping. He looked all around and once again saw no one. Why in the world do you keep saying someone sees me? He angrily asked his daughter. I've looked everywhere and I don't see anyone. Father, murmured the child, someone sees you from above. This is the case always and everywhere, is it not? Isn't it? This is exactly what the Bible teaches. God sees all things. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. And so a biblical conception of who God is requires us to understand that he sees everything. There is nothing hidden from his sight. In fact, my mind immediately went to Isaiah chapter 40, which describes this so incredibly well. It describes God this very way in Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 12. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. Are they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? There is no one in all creation to which we can compare this true and living God. And yet, we are constantly tempted to craft him in an image other than the one he's revealed himself through the word. His word confronts us with a God who has no comparison. And if it were not for his condescension to reveal himself to us, we would not know him at all. In fact, Isaiah 40, 27 goes on to say this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? See, this is actually a very common refrain throughout all the scriptures. There's this idea that God just doesn't see. In fact, like in Psalm 73... The psalmist in Psalm 73, I believe it's Asaph, looks around and seeing all the injustice that's in the land, all the wrong that's happening, the rich living off the backs of the poor. He comes to the conclusion that God just doesn't see or he just doesn't care. Sometimes it comes from the mouths of the wicked themselves who do their deeds in darkness or think that they're doing something in secret. Surely God does not see. They are unknown to him. Isaiah reminds us this is not the case. It is, I believe, a fact of the human condition that we have a really, really hard time grasping that God actually sees all things. Meaning, every instance of sin is done before his eyes. It's committed nonetheless with the illogical assumption that somehow we're going to get away with it. Like David, from our perspective, no one seems to really be watching David or holding him accountable. This is what David believed, is it not? In fact, in 2 Samuel 12, 12, the Lord says to David, For you did it secretly. That's what the Lord says about David's deeds done in chapter 11. And yet the point is, it wasn't secret at all. The Lord saw and it displeased the Lord. So he sends Nathan. Kids, have you ever snuck something out of the cabinet that you were not supposed to have? I know our confession time was earlier, but it's okay. Big kiddos too. Right? You actually do it in such a way that you're looking around the corner, making sure that your parents don't see, really just hoping I don't get caught here. All the while, you're you're doing it before the eyes of your maker. Your deed is not done in secret at all. For the honest person, examples of this will just flood your mind, won't they? 
I mean, really, let's just imagine that every thought, word, and deed just from yesterday was displayed upon the screen behind me for all to see this morning. What if it were like that every single Sunday as we gathered? We started just going through the alphabet and said, all right, here's this one's thoughts, word, and deed. And yet, it's so... (laughs) Yet, it's exactly the way it is. I mean, isn't it insane? Like, we know the Bible teaches it, and therefore we assent to the fact that it's true, yet somehow we dupe ourselves. Our deeds done in darkness are as light unto the Lord. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. I don't think it's by accident that David himself is going to pin these words in Psalm 139, verses 11 and 12. He says... If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you and to I. Those are David's words. No matter how deep you dig your hole, the Lord sees the body. No matter how tight you have the closet locked up, the skeleton is out in the middle of an open field to the Lord. There is no concealing. And David's learning that lesson here right in the beginning of this passage. David worked for months to bury his dirty deeds, didn't he? David covered his tracks. He tied up all the loose ends. And in the end, he's nothing more than a child with chocolate covering his face and a hand in the cookie jar looking at his father saying, No, I didn't have any cookies. I mean, the Lord knows what you're doing. So we can stop hiding. You can stop standing with your eyes closed, pretending that since you can't see the Lord, he can't see you. He's revealing himself in this very passage and reminding us, friends, we stand before God bare. Nothing hidden. In fact, what's funny is he knows your sin even better than you do. You're attempting to conceal the body you've killed, metaphorically, I hope. Um, I hope. (laughs) Yet the Lord is aware of the pile of bodies behind you that you don't even see. It's almost the exact opposite of the story, the telltale heart by a ground Poe. You remember that one, right? If you're familiar with that story, the man commits a murder, dismembers the body, hiding it beneath the floorboards. Oddly enough, one of my favorite stories as a teenager. What does that say about me? Okay. It's not my time. It's our time. Okay. The man is convinced that the heart's beating so loud, right, that surely everybody can hear that. Can't you hear the heart beating? And the cops eventually show up, and they're not aware of the body, but he just loses his mind, and he tells them, it's in here, he's in here, and he rips the floorboards up, showing it to the police. See, we're we're actually just the opposite. The police show up at our door, and our room's just stacked full of bodies, and we're like, come on in, nothing to see here, can I get you some coffee? Your closet is wide open. Use whatever figure of speech you want. It's all laid bare before the Lord. So, why do you work so hard to cover your sin? See, here's the other part of our corporate insanity here. Is that we're more concerned about the judgment of people who have no ultimate impact on our eternal state than we are about the one who determines our eternal destiny. You want to know why we bury sin? Because you and I are more concerned about putting out the right image to the people around us than we are about the God who we will receive judgment from on the last day. Isn't that crazy? 
I mean, listen, how much time do you spend trying to whitewash the tomb? On the day of judgment, every bone will be brought up. Every act of evil will be exposed. It's why David would go on to later write in Psalm 19, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me, Lord, even from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. You hear David's plea. He's well aware, isn't he? Psalm 139, again, we know this well, don't we? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David's well aware that the Lord doesn't have to search him to know his heart. It's already bare before him. This is a plea for the Lord to help him understand his desperate need to be led in a way of righteousness by a righteous God. Church, this is why wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom begins with this knowledge that I cannot hide from God. His holy gaze is always on me. There is no secret I can keep. So the Lord sees all, but he doesn't just see all, friends. We also see even just from verse 1 in itself that the Lord also rules over all. The Lord sees all, but the Lord rules over all. Again, just in verse 1, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Do you remember last week in chapter 11, it was David who was doing all the sending, wasn't it? We have this picture of of David as the sovereign one, if you will. He sent, people went. He called, they came. He took what he wanted. He could put to death. And here, this chapter begins with the Lord sovereignly sending Nathan to David. David had the power to sin, but we're reminded this morning that all of his power is derived. He's now dealing with Yahweh, and Yahweh's power is ultimate, His power is self-existent. He does not derive his power from another. In fact, he's the only being who has self-existent power. Verse 7, the end of the story, really the thrust of the passage tells us, Then David said to Nathan, You are the man. I know I'm getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but we have to see it. Actually, throughout verses 1 through 6, we have a recurrence six times that word is used that you are the man or the man. And it's not by accident that David is here merely a man. He doesn't say, you are the rich and powerful king. He's just like all of his brothers here. He's merely a man. And the point I want us to see is the man was subject to the rule of God. In fact, the rule of the Lord's anointed is the extension of God's rule on the earth. It's the will of the Father on earth as it is in heaven. So the proper understanding of this brings to the forefront the illogical and impossible situation David's created for himself. See, David's power is derived. His rule is an extension of the Holy One of Israel. So how in the world... Is the coveting, adultery, murder in chapter 11 going to stand in the kingdom of righteousness? I mean, it's ludicrous. See, those first two truths that God sees all and God rules over all, they're really foundational truths that that shine light on the illogical nature of our sin more broadly. Are you getting it yet? 
Like, like here, here's clearly the application just so far. Here's the application. The take-home point is this. Sin is insanity. It is. Like, sin is insanity. It's never logical. By its very nature, it's illogical. We live in a world where nothing is hidden and the king is always on the throne. We believe that and yet we sin like we can do it with impunity. Honestly, sin in the context of a sovereign God who sees all things is just flat out ridiculous. There was a, uh, there was a BBC story not too long ago. There was this retired couple, couple from Lancashire who returned home from a holiday to discover a burglar fast asleep in their bed. Like a real life Goldilocks. Like straight out of the story. What's great is he'd done the dishes. Washed his clothes in the, the laundry. He was just making himself a home there. He was extremely tidy. But he was also breaking and entering. So they called the police and he went to jail. And we hear stories like that and we just think that's utterly insane. Who would do that? I mean, you have to know you're going to get caught, we say. And yet, that's us, right? See, see, here's part of the problem. Here's really David's problem in all of this. Part of our problem and what David's problem really is, is that we see what we want to see. We, on the other hand of the Lord seeing all, we, you know what we see? What we want to see. Just, just think about the story we just read in verses 1 through 6. The Lord sends Nathan, who, who comes to David with the story. And really it's a parable. It's given in order just to communicate a point here. And the, the story's quite simple. There's two men. One of them's rich. One of them's poor. The rich man's not just rich. He's filthy rich. A lot of flocks. A lot of herds. Poor man is not just poor. He's filthy poor. One little insignificant lamb. And this little unimportant lamb is, is not just purchased by the man, but it's actually brought into his family in such a way that the lamb, as it says in the text, is like a daughter to him. In the Hebrew, it, it reads even more endearing. From his morsel she ate, from his cup she drank, in his bosom she lay. It's this beautiful, intimate picture of this man and his lamb. But when a guest shows up, the rich man spares his own herds and flocks and takes the poor man's little lamb kills it and prepares it for his guest. And the results are David's indignant. He says, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. The law is clear. The man will restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no pity. The reality is there, there really are all sorts of word plays that make this even more pointed in the story, right? For example, in verse three, we read that the, the lamb eats, drinks, and lies down. Who was here last week, right? You remember Uriah echoing exactly what Uriah refused to do when Uriah was called back for more. It's like Nathan is telling the story about David and there's all these giant big red arrows just flashing lights pointing down at David just out of his peripheral vision and so he can't see him, but, but you do, the reader does. The heart of the matter, though, is the obvious discrepancy between David's actions in chapter 11 and David's response to Nathan's story in chapter 12. David is sincerely angry that this rich man would have the gall to take this poor man's lamb. And, and, as, and as hard as it is, we're actually supposed to hear this 
as, as if it's really from David's heart. Like David's sincerely anger, angry at this man. This same heart that was blind to Uriah feels deeply offended for the sake of this poor imaginary man. I mean, how can this be the same heart, right? I mean, you, you just talk it up to David saying, man, David's messed up. How can this be? You know what it is? I know what it is. It, it's this. David doesn't have a circumcised heart, right? No, I don't, I don't buy that for a moment. I, what do we know about David? It says the Holy Spirit came upon David all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. And it says the Holy Spirit never departed from him. David has demonstrated what faithfulness to God actually looks like for the most of the narrative thus far. We can't just fall back and say this type of duplicity is directly related to David not believing, following, related to an uncircumcised heart. Because I think David does have a circumcised heart. So, so then we go back and ask, how can this be? This is important. Because I, I think we've argued so far, I don't think we see a greater, anybody greater in the Old Testament than David. I know an argument can be made for Abraham or Moses, maybe your team them, but, but David easily is one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. David has revealed what it really looks like to faithfully follow the Lord. So if this great David, if this is, this is David, right? The man after God's own heart, the one who's so wonderful, and this is possible for him, are you greater than David? If you think you are, then you're more insane than than I thought originally. So how can this be? This is how this can be. John Calvin actually answers the question we're asking this way. This quote is just so good. Listen to this. The human heart has so many crannies where vanity hides. So many holes where falsehood works. Is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. Actually, hard to say it any better than that, isn't it? Listen, it's very telling. Hear me. I say this in love. It's very telling that all of a sudden our vision becomes 2020 when it comes to the sin of others. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. This is biblical anthropology, folks. This is what the Bible says about us. Let me ask you, do you trust your own heart? Do you believe your heart is free from those crannies of vanity? Listen, David hears this story and he immediately cries out for justice. He knows what the law says. He says he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Friends, that's like straight out of Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. This theft is wrong and he understands what the punishment is fitting for the crime. David is well aware of right and wrong. In fact, C.S. Lewis points this out from the very beginning of his book, Mere Christianity. He, he talks about how there are those who actually deny absolute morality, that there is such a thing as right and wrong, but, but no one actually denies it in practice. He says, whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he'll be complaining it's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. See, this is the case with David. David can, in chapter 11, remember, act like this evil thing. In, don't let this be an evil thing in your sight. 
Joab, don't let this displease you. And then the very next chapter, be presented a story uh, about a theft by a rich man from a poor man, and he's incensed with anger. His moral compass works just fine when it comes to the issues of others. See, it's not even as though David didn't know what he was doing was wrong in chapter 11. See, when I was first looking at this this week, I was, I was actually tempted to paint David as though he was just blind to his sin at this point. That's not the case at all. David clearly knew what he was doing. He knows it's wrong. If he didn't, you don't call Uriah back from the battlefield. Right? You, you just wait till he gets home and say, Hey, Uriah, i got to talk to you. Sorry, when you were gone, your wife had a baby. It's mine. Apologies. It happens. No. He knows it's wrong. That's why... When he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, he tries to cover it up. Yet, in his mind, somehow, listen to this, somehow he's able to justify that wrong in such a way that allows for him to keep it hidden. And here's the truth of it. I can relate to that. Like, it scares me that I can, doesn't it? This is incredibly important for all of us to understand. It is not simply that you're blind to your sin as though you just don't see it as sin. You know it's wrong. But there's something in you that that tells you that the things you're doing are not quite right. But it's not nearly as clear as when you see it in your neighbor. Then you are incensed. Parents, please just throw me a bone here, right? How many times have you yelled at your kids because they're yelling? Anybody? Don't lie. I've seen some of you do it. Listen, it doesn't make any sense, right? As as parents, we we see it. But I'm, I'm not even talking about that complete blindness that recognizes what we've been doing is actually sin. I'm I'm talking about that sin we know is present, but we think, you know what? It's never gonna happen again. All I need to do is just get past this. If I can hide this sin, then the kingdom will just keep on going. It's going to be okay. Joab, don't let this thing bother you, man. It happens sometimes. There are more important things. Friends, that sin will find you out. What, What do you think you're doing? So, so the scriptures are clear. What are we to do? Actually, Ephesians 5 is so poignant for us today to hear because it's clear for us. What do we do when we see this exposed sin in our lives and we know that this is an issue? We know we're not technically just blind to the fact. We're just justifying what do we do. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 7, says this. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But rather, expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who asleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The human heart has so many crannities. 
crannies were vanity lies. Just trying to save us some time there. Crannies. So many crannies were vanity lies. So many falsehoods or holes were falsehood works. So decked out with hypocrisy that it dupes itself. But there are those moments, aren't there? Where the light comes on just enough that you know I shouldn't be walking in these ways. Friends, when that happens, don't ignore the grace of God. That, that moment when the light shines upon it, that's actually grace from God exposing sin. So grab hold of it with both fists and drag that sin all the way into the light. Now listen, I'm not encouraging you to do it in such a way that you like send out an email to the whole church telling them every thought and deed you've done over the last week or two. We don't have time, but, but listen friends, hear me. You need to be confessing sin publicly to someone. You need it. Especially those pernicious sins that tend to take root. You need help. We need help. Do you understand? The Lord sees it. And, and you are going to give an account. See, the end result of the story here is, is not that David gets played. The reality is the Lord's exceedingly kind to David in bringing his sin to the light. And as somebody in my, in my life who has experienced hidden sin, can I tell you as a true believer who has experienced hidden sin, there's almost a tremendous relief and thankfulness when the Lord sends a brother to say, I see that sin in you, expose it. And when you're exposed... The only time you're really free from it. And that being set free from that sin and having victory of Christ, there is no comparison to that in this life. It is just pure and utter joy. So, so here's the issue is where we get hung up is right here. This moment where we're like, you know what? If I expose this hidden sin, so much is going to change about my life. Friends, that's a lie from the devil. And even if it does, this life is not all there is. You're not living for this life. Don't be concerned with this life. Be concerned with, with the Lord who sees all and knows all. We have to understand this. The Lord's kind in bringing sin to light. And so Nathan says, You are the man. And, and we think in our minds, Oh, he got David good. Friends, you are the man. I am the man. Praise God for consistently and continually exposing sin in our lives. How gracious and kind he is to do that. One commentator calls those words in verse 7 the most dramatic sentence in the Old Testament. David, you are the man. This is really one of the themes throughout First and Second Samuel. Every mountain will be laid low and every valley will be raised up. And at the end of the day, church family, every person will give an account for every thought, word, and deed. Everyone will give an account for every thought, word, and deed. And hear me. Everyone will have one hope of salvation. They will confess the Lord Jesus Christ and be found in Him, having their sins removed as far as east is from the west, or they'll bear their own sins, each and every one of them, for all of eternity. The question is, how do we respond to so great a salvation? 
we do it with humble integrity. Because really this passage just kept coming to mind. I think fits so well this week. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, Paul says. For I know of nothing against myself. Follow what he's saying here. He says, listen, I don't really care if I'm judged by you or Corinthians or or, or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself because I'm not currently actually aware of any obvious, continual, unrepentant sin before the Lord. But it doesn't matter, Paul says. Yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. See, that's the end of the matter. When, when you come to understand, as our passage clearly states, that the Lord sees all and the Lord rules over all and that we don't see all and we stand before God and will give an account for every thought, word, and deed, then you come to understand it doesn't matter who judges me or how I judge me. What's my hope? Here's Paul. Here's what he says and here's our application. My hope is that the Lord will judge me. Now we hear this a lot in our culture, don't we? Right? Don't judge me. Only God can judge me. And reality is we throw that out not really thinking of the implication. that you, Is that what you really want? <laughs> like I'm, I'm not holy and righteous. And the Lord is. And he's going to judge you according to that holy and righteous standard. Anyways, uh, I don't know if that's really what you want. But, but here's the thing. I get that that doesn't sound all that helpful for you. Like if that's the, that's, you, you notice that's the last point in your outline, right? And you're like, okay, where's, where's the hope in that? <laughs> like I thought... Thought you were just going to pound on us for like 30 minutes and then like at five minutes give us some sort of, sort of like, yeah, great, we're feeling good now. Let's go eat and not cry ourselves to sleep. But no, listen, the, the Lord will judge you. I get that doesn't sound very hopeful. It doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? But it is. Why? Listen, hear me. Here's, here's the five minutes, okay? God's well aware that you're a sinner. He's he's well aware that you spend entirely too much of your time trying to hide your sin. And like a loving father, he bears with you. He disciplines you. He brings your sin to light oh so carefully. But as he does, he continues to grow you into the image of his son. Your father is exceedingly patient and he is strong and kind. In fact, let's go back to David. Let's ask, why, why doesn't David die? Like right here. Like is this sin really all that worse than Saul's or Eli and his sons? I mean, the law demands his death. David should die. And the Lord says, you will not die. Why? Because the Lord passed over his sin. Because in the fullness of time, he sent forth this son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as son as and daughters. Do you understand, beloved? Your father holds you fast. You can entrust yourself to a just judge who is both now just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Because he has put your sin away. What sin? The very sin that you're trying to hide. See, there's two reasons to bring everything to light. One is because the Lord already sees it. He already rules over it. And someday you'll give an account for it. I know that's three, but I'm counting it as one. But there's a better reason. It's because your Lord, your Savior, has already taken it upon Himself and put it away. 
as far as the east is from the west. And I don't know how good you are at geography, but that's far. The reality is, if you dug up that hole hiding all those bodies and all your sin, you know what you'd find? This is the gospel, listen. You'd find nothing. Nothing. Look, we're, we're going to deal with the consequences of sin in the coming weeks. There are temporal consequences our Father will mean for our good. But there's no condemnation. None. So, so can we recommit to being a body of believers who do not hide our sin? Who cry out when we find ourselves ensnared by it? Who like ask for help? For our brothers and sisters through prayer and accountability to pursue holiness. To pray regularly of Psalm 139 that Lord would just search us. Find if there be any wicked way in us that might lead us into the path of everlasting life. Friends, can we give up the insanity? The Lord sees all. He rules over all. He knows it. And He still loves you. He still sent His Son to pay the penalty for the sin you're trying to hide. He still declared you righteous though you fear man more than Him. Praise be to God. So so all I'm asking this week, I know it's homecoming, that's not very a homecoming-y sermon, I get that. Friends, let's give up the insanity. We should be a church that's constantly confessing and acknowledging our struggle with sin. And and I know, here's the, this is near and dear to my heart because I've been there, guys. I've, I've been at the point where you're so terrified that somebody's going to look differently at you if you confess hidden sin. The reality is, friends, listen here, listen to me. Nathan wasn't sinless, Nathan wasn't perfect. Nathan didn't therefore hold King David under his thumb in condescension for the rest of his life. Nathan's just the messenger, the prophet of the Lord Jesus. Nathan's someone who also had his sins forgiven by King Jesus. So the reality is, that thing you're fearing, that reason you're fearing for not confessing your sin to your brothers and sisters in Christ, is the very thing the enemy's using to hold you under. To keep you from ever growing and ever having victory that's awaiting you. When you receive the forgiveness of those very sins. Can the insanity stop? The Lord sees all. Stand together as we pray and close. Gracious Father, we, we know this to be true. We know that even darkness is as light to you, that there's no hiding our sin. Father, that would be a terrifying thing if your love had not been manifest in sending your son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. But in light of such a great love, would you stir up our hearts together towards greater transparency Would you help us to be a people who bring our sin to the light, trusting that in doing so it becomes light. You bring healing and restoration. We thank you that you've dealt with our sin. Would you receive us as your children that we can sing and celebrate together, knowing that you will hold us fast to the very end. 
Lord, continue to build up your people with these truths. If there's one here who does not have that assurance, who knows that they do not have a saving relationship with Jesus, that, Lord, right now they're hiding their sins because they know they're receiving condemnation because they're apart from you. They're not resting in the finished work of your Son. And, Lord, you stir up their hearts during our time of invitation that's coming after we sing. Would you stir up their hearts to be willing and ready to hear the gospel, hear the good news of salvation? you've provided for us through your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.